This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. Any time that a platform is given to black and brown voices in a historical context, it makes white people feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. because of the realities of the history mm-hmm. of this country. And I think that it really pushes against the narrative of American exceptionalism. Yeah. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Inter- interchangeable. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. So for today's essential question, how is the panic around critical race theory indicative of white nonsense? And why has it become such an easy target for conservative politicians? But before we jump into this invigorating conversation, first a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of the Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is brought to you by Mindfulness Meditation for the Emotionally Constipated. While true peace of mind only comes from the catharsis that follows an epic spiritual dump and possessing enough disposable income to afford our outrageously overpriced 10-week meditation retreat from home, we hope you feel hashtag blessed as you enjoy this free preview of our latest class. Breathe in. Release. Breathe in. Release. Bob Dylan once sang, Don't criticize what you can't understand we often encounter the unfamiliar, things we don't get, fruit that's labeled as gluten-free, the cost of parking, why teeth are insured separately from our other bones, privately funded internet cables under the ocean, Sherpa-lined Crocs. It's tempting to criticize those things we don't understand. Critical race theory, for example. The white woman in all of us bristles at the word critical because it just doesn't jive with toxic positivity. The mere mention of race makes some pasty people apoplectic with rage. And if theory is really just an idea that can be disproven, right? So a contingent of naysayers toss the whole concept directly into the proverbial trash can. But I want you to fish it out, dear meditator. I want you to fish it out and dust it off. Don't criticize it until you seek to understand it. Namaste. 
Well, I feel more relaxed after that. Breathing in, breathing out. I mean, my gosh. And I really needed that because um, today we are back in studio. We're here. I am having a hard time not being so excited. It's happening. I'm looking at you in the flesh, looking you in the eyes. Across from the card table. Yeah, trying I mean, not to make it awkward. Doug judging around the corner. I mean, it's just fantastic. Right there, I he's waving at us. facial it's, expressions. We're all sharing space. It's so weird. It's so weird. My first time as co-host in, in studio in person oh with you. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So to commemorate this moment, we're picking this uh, really awesome topic. And we'll start first with our new segment, Yeah, No, Yeah. Interchangeable. White ladies. And if you all remember, yeah means yeah, no means no, no yeah means sure, yeah, no, no means no, yeah, no for sure is yeah, 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 yeah equals no, yeah, no, yeah, yep, I'll do it. No, yeah, no means heck no, not doing not it, not doing thinking it. it. All right. Are you going to ask me these questions, Megan? And then I will respond. No, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so, critical race theory. It undercuts patriotism. Yeah, no. Well, that was really, like, it's divisive. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. But yeah, 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 no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I have like, several answers right? there. Like, what you want it to be versus what it actually is, what's <laughs> happening. Ideology over accuracy. No. Colonists fought the Revolutionary War to preserve slavery. Uh, Yeah, no, for sure. Hello. Slavery is uniquely American enterprise. This one I feel hard because part of me is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then part of me is like, well, no, Mm -hmm. but yeah, but American Mm -hmm. has a unique version of it, Mm -hmm. but it's still no. So Mm -hmm. I I made up my own one Mm -hmm. here. Which, I mean, is also very on brand for us. (laughs) And this is a legitimate crisis in civics education. No. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) So we decided to talk about this topic actually a few weeks ago because this has kind of come back up. Um, not just in social media, but in news and reports and, and various kind of spaces. People are having this conversation. But actually, mm-hmm. the the topic of critical race theory and some of the, like, intensity around it has been something that's actually quite ongoing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, today part of what we want to do is unpack why this is all over the news and why the far right is just losing their minds and why there's policies being put in place to ban teacher um, freedom in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. I think you can argue mm-hmm. that um, around the pol- you know, around teaching CRT and even if people are even teaching it. So we'll unpack all of those kind yeah. of pieces today. There's a lot of layers to it. Absolutely. So Megan, why don't you start us off with just trying to wrap our heads around or helping our listeners understand what the heck is, and I'm going to use an old word, kerfuffle, Ooh. Ooh. around kerfuffle. Um, critical race theory. Yeah. I, I think that there's, like you said, I love that you were like, oh, there's a lot of layers to this, right? So there's a lot of different directions that we were like, oh, we could go in, right? But I think that right now, um, a lot of it is this conversation when in all actuality, it's not critical race theory that I think many people are debating, but Mm. rather just the conversations about race that are happening in the classrooms. And um, they're kind of, and by they, I mean conservatives Mm. and the far right are using the name critical race theory, but actually are just talking about 
race. Mm. And I found this really great quote from um, a New York Times opinion piece, the maddening critical race theory debate Mm -hmm. that I I just thought really encapsulated what's going on here. And so it's Christopher Rufo, a clever propagandist who has done more than anyone else to whip up the national uproar over critical race theory, tweeted out in March an explanation of how he was redefining the term. Mm. He said, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. Shame. 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 We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. So he wrote that in March. And essentially, that is what is happening, is that they have redefined the term critical mm-hmm. race theory that has existed since the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the the... The term critical, um, they use that in the 80s because of work that was done in the 1930s in Germany. There were um, scholars in Germany that were like, oh, there's like this really interesting, scary group of um, politicians rising in power in Germany in the 1930s. And so they really used, like, took that term critical and created critical race theory. And it's this idea that it's looking at how race has is a social construct, mm-hmm. And racism is systemic and how race has played into and impacted the systems that we exist in in this country is essentially the idea of critical race theory. Yeah. So uh, as before we unpack even some other definitions or just kind of fill out, round out the various ways people are defining this term um, and this theory. Can you mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about why you think um, that dude, let me go back to my notes mm-hmm. here, Christopher Rufo, why you think his comment is so... Um, revealing or so telling mm-hmm. for for us in this time and space I think that it's playing it's it's revealing of what we're seeing in politics is that it's playing on people's mm. gut reactions mm-hmm. right that there is people are consuming information in 140 characters or less in many situations. And so the more that you can create propaganda that creates instantaneous emotional reactions to things that are not necessarily rooted in fact or information, but just emotions based on fear— Um, the more power you're going to have over your base. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are seeing that right now with this debate is that if you redefine the term, if you root it in fear, if you weaponize it, then your base is going to become your army, right? Mm -hmm. And they're going to fight this fight for you and think that their children are in danger. Mm -hmm. And, And so all of a sudden information and facts don't matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we're seeing, right? Mm-hmm. That that that's what that quote said is it was so intentional the redefining of this term in order right. to like weaponize it. Well, it's interesting too part of the line that says um it's an idea that's unpopular with Americans because immediately I'm like, well what <laughs> Americans are you talking about? Yeah, unpopular exactly. with who? Oh, mm-hmm. white Americans, which you know, depending on what part of the country you're looking at is becoming more and more of a uh, I don't know the word minority has a lot of stuff in it, but right. I think there's a a sense of loss of their power, right? And so they're like, well, if all Americans believe this, no, you mean just a small portion. You mean white Americans. White Americans. A specific part of white America as well. Absolutely. But just framing it as everybody, then we're all, you know, up in arms. And I think I've been trying. I love that you say the minority and like the what we can unpack with that. I've been trying really, really hard to use 
the term marginalized mm-hmm. rather than minority because yeah. I think that using the minority sends the message that it's the smaller number of people in this country that believe those things. But in all actuality, it's not. We know that when we look at the numbers, um, but they're marginalized, right, because they have not historically um, sat in power yeah. in positions of yep. power. Yep. So in thinking about what CRT even is and what people know or don't know about it, um, I was reading an article, which we'll link to um, in the notes here, that says basically they did a poll recently that 80 percent of Americans had never even heard of the term or -hmm. they weren't even sure of it. But that did not stop them from being super upset about it. Isn't that doesn't that yeah. feel good? Oh, it's yeah, it's, listeners, so, it's so nice to just like reach out and grab grab the shame bell. The shame bell. It just feels so good. We're yes. back back rolling. Um, so it's so funny to me. And then the blaming of the Biden administration as if like they suddenly had something to do with this term as if it was new. Again, people not even knowing what the hell they're actually talking yeah. about. Um, and I think part of it stems another part of the article talked about how white people and this this portion of Americans um, really believe that racism have a hard time believing that racism is a, a product of a system, but rather is like, you know, a few people here and mm-hmm. there. And I think that's part of why people are so upset about it. Mm-hmm. But even if we so, you know, I, I think for some folks, you know, who've been paying attention to social media and the news, you might be thinking about it as like, oh, it's the last couple months, you know, people getting upset. But actually, people have started getting upset. For, I mean, they've been upset for a while. Yeah. But I think we could point to um, when the pro- uh, one particular moment when the project, sorry, um, the 1619 project kind of mm-hmm. came onto people's radar. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that seems to be one moment we can trace back in the last couple of years. The 1619 Project, first, if if you haven't heard of it, it is a project that a journalist with the New York Times put together. Um, and to be really clear, the 1619 Project is not a curriculum. It is, nope. it is a group of sources yep. and resources that is meant to supplement the learning that is happening in the classroom. And it is um, like sources of former slaves. It is um, bringing in voices, black and brown voices, into the history of the United States, right? It's meant to supplement the history that is already being taught in classrooms across the country. And I think that um, any time that a platform is given to black and brown voices in a historical context, it makes white people feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. because of the realities of the history mm-hmm. of this country. And I think that it really pushes against the narrative of American exceptionalism. Yeah. And um, and I think that that really upsets people that believe themselves to be patriots. And I, I think that that's also something that we can unpack about how all of, like the American flag and patriotism has been taken Um, by the conservative far right, or Mm -hmm. not even far right, but the conservative right, and um, how if you feel like your country is being attacked when speaking out against slavery, and if you feel like your country is being attacked when speaking out against systemic racism, Mm -hmm. then then what is your country? Well, and I feel like in that definition of patriotism, it's just uh, full-on acceptance of all the things, and like no critical thinking, no criticism. And I have to think about like, when you criticize something, it should come from a place of love, right? Absolutely. When you critique something, and I have the right to critique something that I love Absolutely. and want to be better, right? But in their version of patriotism, 
you can't do all that, right? You have to just be like, turn a blind eye, ignore it. It's only mm-hmm. the good. It's only like the part of the story. Like, oh, only what's her past. face, you know, stitched the flag and now it's all fine, yep. you know, like <laughs> rather than like a more Absolutely. complete. And I laugh because it's just so stupid. But at the same time, I mean, people really have a hard time. Um, yeah, they want to define patriotism that way. Yeah, and, and I think and also as you're saying that um, this concept of American exceptionalism I've been really reflecting on during COVID Mm. and my anger that has grown um, toward the ugly parts of people during this period of time in the United States during this like global pandemic. Talk your shit. (laughs) Right. And and I think that that also has fueled it. Right. That that people have felt under attack. Yeah. Um, more publicly because, right, there's very public ways of telling people that, of of identifying people, right? Like these masks, like wearing masks out in public has also um, made it very easy to identify and spot. And I think that that, or or seemingly, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say that it is, right? Because it's not cut and like black and white and cut and dry, but it's yeah. seemingly people walk out like, you know, the jokes of, well, I don't have to wear my mask anymore in public because I'm vaccinated, but I don't want people to think that I'm a Republican, like all of those jokes that are happening right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I think that the mm-hmm. anger towards American exceptionalism and like, oh, I'm not going to wear my mask and I'm not going to social distance. And I like the anger of that. And then the people on the other side, right, that are becoming far more vocal about calling that BS out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just like this bubbling to the surface and then with the murder of George Floyd and the protests that were happening during the pandemic, I think it's all kind of the perfect storm Mm -hmm. of lots of feelings, lots (laughs) of feelings. Yeah, and I I think we would be remiss, too, if if we didn't acknowledge that part of um, people's anger, and particularly around the 69 Project, is thinking about who pulled it together. And so Nicole Hannah-Jones, a black woman, right, and all of the things that we know about um, America's treatment towards black women or of black women and the disparaging comments, the disparaging attitude, um, the disrespect, um, all that stuff that is kind of in there, I think it's also part of it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not like the dominant conversation, but I cannot – we have to acknowledge that, I feel like, especially yeah. – um, and this this outrage towards that. I wonder if that project was developed by a white dude, <clears throat> whether or not mm-hmm. folks would feel the same way that they feel mm-hmm. about it and conservatives, white men conservatives, would feel that way about yeah. it. I, I'm skeptical to believe that they would – I think they'd be fine with it if it was somebody else was the yeah. face of that program. That I was recently reading an article and now I'm like kicking myself for not bookmarking it. But it was either a university or an like journalistic association that like took something away from her because they mm. said that the 1619 project meant that she was no longer an unbiased journalist. No, please. And um, and so truly the the severe attacking yeah. of her journalistic integrity when in all actuality, like truly I need I, – I, as somebody who has gone through the 1619 Project and looked at it and read it, I really want people to understand that all it is are secondary sources to yeah. supplement – the learning happening yeah. in classrooms. It's its literally just sources and accounts of people that yeah. existed and lived during that time in history. It is it, – that's all it is, 
right? It is essentially it's like a museum exhibit. It's a museum, online, absolutely. Right? It's like, like oh, you can go to a museum, see this exhibit, see how the sources are curated, pull together your own thinking yep. around it. Essentially, that's what it is. And that's just good. And I also that's just good learning that happens in classrooms <laughs> yeah, every day. Yeah. Right. You present students with sources and then they are able to conclude and come to their own conclusions yeah. about the history of this country. That's that's just good teaching. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, and so as we talk about this, you define critical race theory at the top of this. And mm -hmm. one of the things I want to talk a little bit about is just some of the different ways folks are defining it. And I, I think this is part of. Well, back to the article, right, how they're, how it is being intentionally reconstructed or redefined. And so I think part of that is, you know, where in history do you look to see the origination of something? So you mentioned the reference to the 30s. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can also look back at Derek Bell's work. Uh, and according to Leanne Stevens, Dr. Leanne Stevens, who will be joining us for part two of this of this topic, which we're super excited about um, in a couple of weeks. Uh, one of the things that she tweeted out is that critical race theory is established as a means for challenging dominant systems of racial oppression, examines unequal and un unjust distribution of power and resources. Mm -hmm. And she cites Derek Bell as considered the founder or the father of critical race theory. And really, his work started in the 70s. Um, one of the things that I was reading about his work is that he was focused on understanding this as a sense of scholarship mm -hmm. and specifically related to direct action and in law. Uh, if you look then, there's another source um, that I, I'm going to link to in the show notes I, folk, I think folks should really go read. It, it's really fantastic and just the way that lays out kind of a trajectory. And it really pulls in in the 80s with Kim Kimberly Crenshaw. And most people know her from her work around coining the term intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And so for her, she's also identified as the creator of CRT um, and recognizing that race intersects with all these other identities, including sexuality, gender, and so on. And that it's not racism isn't just something of the past, but it is present. It is alive. What is the legacy of racism, the leg legacy of, of segregation, and thinking about second class citizenship that is imposed on black Americans in particular. Mm -hmm. And so I found I find it interesting that we have these kind of different folks that are given um, or I recognize as being the originators of this term, yeah. but also thinking about, well, how is this term and the scholarship of this as a, as a concept or as a theory? How has that kind of evolved? Um, and so, again, in this article, it just had so much interesting stuff around. It also had some other folks who are given credit for helping coin this term or defining in our, right. our, our psyche a little bit. So uh, I don't know if you have any other thoughts or other ways that you think about how it's defined or being redefined. Yeah. Um, what are some th thoughts you have on that? I mean, I just got lost in everything that you were just saying. <laughs> Um, I, I just I think that clarifying that I, I think right now when we're looking at all of the state legislatures that are currently mm. currently trying to pass policies, some successfully, some not, um, they're not the laws that are being passed are not specifically about that definition that you just talked about mm -hmm. through critical race theory. Really, what's happening is um, not wanting to talk about race. Right. at all yeah. in the classroom and really trying to stop teachers from discussing race, the implications of race. I think that I read um, somewhere, I think it was either Texas or Florida, their laws was that that really wanting their teachers to frame slavery as an economic system that was flawed. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can I ring the chamber? Please, hey. please, that deserves more than, yep, there it is. There um, and so I think that... That's kind of the the way that it's being framed without the full understanding of what critical race theory actually is. The understanding that really the depths of critical race theory are not really happening fully in K yeah, through 12 right. classrooms. Right. Like it's higher level thinking. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah, I, I just I think that it's now being used to just kind of the catch all that that fra- that phrase critical race theory is being used as a catch all for any time a teacher is speaking about race yeah, or systemic right. racism. Yeah. Or anything like that. Like different people of different races bought this house, these houses, and it's like, oh my gosh, critical race critical theory. Critical race theory. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think now is a really great time for us to throw it to a break. And then when we come back, we'll have kind of a conversation of why do we think conservatives have really grabbed a hold of this topic at this moment in history. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you want to learn more, visit MoveToTacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. Welcome back. So, Megan, tell us why now? Um, if this is something that has been in scholarship for a long time. We've kind of got this ebb and flow. And then we talked about how the 69 Project kind of triggered in a new way for folks a couple of years ago when it first started. Um, why now? So, I, as I was um, creating the, the notes for this show and doing research, I just went full rage mode, <laughs> like politics and all that, which I'm still— all for, but then I was like, "Ooh, maybe I should like pull it back a little bit, and also think critically about um, why maybe some parents or how maybe some parents have been manipulated by yeah. that redefinition." So in terms of a political viewpoint, I think that the Republican Party has a lot to gain from being divisive around race Mm. and creating fear around race because the more people are afraid of race and talking about systemic racism and the more people are aware of systemic racism, the more they will see it in the policies that exist in our country. And we, more than ever before, we have Republicans coming out and saying The more people have access to our political system and the more people that have access to their rights to vote, the less Republicans will win elections, Mm -hmm. right? So the more people that are participating in our democracy, the less Republicans will be winning, right? And so if children are learning about systemic racism and they see it, all of a sudden they're going to see the gerrymandering, Mm -hmm. right, racial gerrymandering, the more they're going to see, oh, they're closing 600, uh, like, polling stations in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Oh, this law has everything to do with, like, the photo ID laws are targeting black and brown people. And so the more people see it, and it is a—it's taught as fact, Mm -hmm. 
the less power the Republican Party will have. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I deeply believe that. I think that that is why the Republican Party has a vested interest in pretending like systemic racism is a thing of the past. Yeah, and I'm thinking a bit, as you're talking, I'm thinking a bit about the just one of the tenets, just the idea that race is a social construct. People mm-hmm. are threatened by that. The more Absolutely. you say that it's social construct, then it's like, well, we created it, so then we can get rid of it. Well, if we get rid of it, what's going to happen to the things that we've set in place for all these years, mm-hmm. the, policies we ha- the policies we have, um, you know, our p- voting system, like whatever it may be, then we have to reevaluate all of that. Yeah. And that's very threatening, I think. Plus, it also is just kind of complicated, too, right? And folks are like, let's take the easiest route. What's the easiest yeah. route? Keep people ignorant. Keep people not voting. Keep people left out of the conversation. And I think we have— have to have the conversation about the reality that one of our two major political parties is only powerful by restricting the rights of people. Yeah, right. Like that is when you have when you're when a political party, yeah. one of two political parties has reached such a place in their existence that they are openly admitting that the more people have access to their rights, the less power we are going to have in Congress and they're fear-mongering their base. Mm-hmm. I mean that nonprofit mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that came out and is now actively funding the push for um, these policies, these um, taking away voting rights mm-hmm. from specific groups. I mean, like the videos that leaked from their conference about a month ago where I, I forget the name of it. Was it the Heritage Foundation? Maybe. Maybe. Um, where they were saying on stage, listen, we are this is how successful we're being at restricting voting rights right. to these demographics of people across the country. We have there's going to have to be a reckoning, in my opinion, if our democracy in the United States is going to like succeed. We have to have a reckoning that one of our two major political parties is only in power by marginalizing and restricting the rights of a very large percentage of Mm -hmm, this country. mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think about if high school, if kids are learning that, that idea that race is a social construct and that thing, you know, outcomes and policies are racialized. Um, what's the line you and Nate always say it, but I can't remember the wording. It's like the policy is not racist, but the outcomes have racialized outcome. What is it? Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. What's the de line? facto versus um, essentially, de jure versus de facto. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. you know, these all these things have racialized outcomes. Right. Yes. And so if kids are learning about that on yeah. some micro level and then, you, you know, go into high school and you're learning a whole picture and you're, you know, I can't believe you read a narrative from somebody in a given mm-hmm. time and space and they told a different side of the story. Um, and then, you know, they start to be able to vote. Then they, maybe they're going to vote in a different yeah. kind of way. And then lo and behold, they're going to change, you know, the parties and change, you know, society. That's so threatening. <laughs> you know, that, that's so threatening. It's funny because that's actually really a long game, too. Right. It takes mm-hmm. so long for people to kind of come to awareness and, and growth and then to change what's happening in the society and in the policies. Absolutely. I, and I mean, when you look at the data, you see that the more education somebody receives, the more likely they are to vote yeah. left um, and liberal, which like there's caveats to that. Sure. Right. But I think that the more informed they are, they tend to see that one of the political parties is um, gaining power by really harmful mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of my, like, I'll get off of my political soapbox. And, <laughs> um, and, and so another thing that I saw in turn, and, and I said it when I kind of, you asked this is the manipulation of parents right. and what's their reaction. Yeah. And so I was reading this really interesting, um, 
article from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. They're called FIRE. We'll link it in the show notes. But they're a nonprofit that um, is nonpartisan and really are on this like weird middle ground where they're they're very focused on the constitutionality of things. Hmm, okay. And so they are fighting for the rights of students always, the individual rights of students in the classroom. They fight for students' freedom of speech in the classroom and in school um, and are primarily against restricting teachers, right? Okay. So the freedom of for teachers, but also in the same article kind of gave it's not unconstitutional for state legislatures to restrict K through 12 because – there is a lot of power that state legislatures have in K through 12 education, mm-hmm. state by state. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this interesting. There's a lot to read. They have 13 important points. I recommend going and reading that full article. There was some things that really pushed back against what I believe about this yeah. and made me think. And one thing that I saw was that at one point, the author outlines six different circumstances of white students experiencing um some negative I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this some um, negative I'm like waiting for it some negative emotions and feelings around their race in their classrooms through conversations about race that their teachers mm. were leading and there were six situations and I want to be very clear no student should ever be made to feel bad or guilty specifically individually about who they are about their race in the classroom that should never be the goal of a school or administration Mm -hmm. or an educational system um i think that that's fear-mongering to say that that's critical race theory because if you look that is not critical race theory um that's misguided lessons that are trying to attempt critical race theory yeah um but it, she, you know, in the article, they outlined these six instances as a point to say, well, see, there is a reason for this fear. It is happening. To claim that there is not, this isn't happening is not fair for the left to say because there are clearly incidents of this happening. And in my mind, all I could think was you just listed six instances, half of which I would argue maybe weren't as serious as yeah, they were right, trying to say. Course. Half of them were, like, were problematic, definitely. But it completely disregards how problematic the curriculums that have been happening in classrooms for decades That's right. That's have been thing. harming black hello, and brown students. Hello, yeah, all the trauma that the our trauma. K-12 curriculum content, I mean, even if you want to say, like, best intent, whatever, that has caused so much trauma for so many kids in so many communities for a long-ass time. Yes. Sorry, I'm swearing in this episode. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous to say, like, oh, here's these two incidences where these white kids feel bad. I mean, sure. Thousands yeah, like you and said, thousands I feel bad thousands. for them. Yep, you're right. No kids should feel bad, but also it's, give me a break. It's wild. I have seen so many videos on TikTok of black students recording their teachers yeah. saying horrifically racist things yeah. in the classroom. And then they get in trouble for recording their teachers. Of course. Like, yeah. I've seen way more than six videos of that happening. And I just think that— you can always find cases to back up what you're arguing, mm-hmm. but the prevalence of it. Yeah. Like, are you using those singular instances to fight against a system that is harming BIPOC students in the mm-hmm. classroom and mm-hmm. have has been for decades? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
I just, it's a no, like for me, there's no comparison. Yeah. It's back to the anecdotes are not data. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, yeah, three, six situations. Yep, yep. Okay, valid. But that is not, that is not a case for a systemic issue. Like it's not so, systemic yes. data. So English teacher, <laughs> what type of argument is it? Is that the straw man yeah, argument, yeah. right? Where yeah. it's like, it's, you're building it up. Is that, did I actually use the correct I one? I think so, yeah. Is that the straw man, fall- the fallacy? More or less, or yeah, more illogical. or less yeah. anecdotal evidence. Yeah. It's not, well, and so I think this, it brings us to the point of like why this conversation is so important right now. I keep wanting to say critical. <laughs> um, why it's so critical now is, is is what you said, right? So I think it's important for us to, you know, understand why families feel threatened and why parents are concerned. And of course, right? Yep. At the same time, it's it's essentially a moral panic, right? We've been talking a lot about moral yeah. panics, and um, I'm always talking about that podcast, You're Wrong About, where they basically unpack moral panics from the decades. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I mean, I think that's really what it is. And to your point, the conservative party or, you know, Republicans who want to frame, keep themselves in power, so they're framing in this particular way. I think about control, right? We've, we've seen a lot of um, school boards step in and say, yeah. like, ban it, right? I was thinking about the Florida case that just happened a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it makes me wonder, in your opinion, do you think teachers are actually teaching critical race theory? I mean, mm. we've kind of gone around that a little bit, but what would you say? What are we, what are people actually teaching? Because I personally don't right. think, I don't think people are actually teaching critical race theory. Right. Um, so before I answer that, but I don't I want do, to add in my yeah. own anecdotal evidence. Yes. Before, <laughs> to five yes. teachers, I before know. I answer that, I do want yes. to go back and say yes, for parents that are fearful for their children. We have to recognize that for many of these parents, they have not done the self-reflection or they haven't learned about it. And so they don't know. All they know is that when systemic racism or racism is spoken about, they feel attacked and they feel bad and they feel shame that they can't identify as shame. And they want to protect their children from having to feel that. And so they, they cannot fathom race or racism or systemic racism being spoken about in a way that is not going to make their white children feel that way. And so in their minds, anytime racism is spoken about, they feel bad and my kids shouldn't feel bad. Well, and I I would add to like, I think there's part of that can come out of goodwill, right? Yeah, For your absolutely. kid, but also, like, I imagine that there's a number of folks who also are still in, engaged in that colorblind ideology, yeah. right? We should all be equal. Yeah. And so it's maybe it's not about, you know, denying racism, but it's more about, well, if we ignore it, then we're all going to be equal and we can all feel better mm-hmm. and we can all move forward. And then add that in with that layer of patriotism we were talking yep. about and at the beginning yep. and American exceptionalism and all those pieces and— it does come from, I mean, I don't want to say a positive place, but I think there's a mm-hmm. little bit of that that's there as well. You do the best with what you have. Yes. And if you've never had it before, if you've never been taught it, if you've never experienced a conversation about race that doesn't feel like you're being attacked, yeah. that's the only way that you'll, you can sure. imagine it mm-hmm. um, for your children. When in all actuality, so which brings us to, do I think that it's being taught in schools? Um, I think that some teachers are. I think that there are elements of it happening in classrooms. Um I don't think to the level of what like the scholars or academia have defined it as in the 70s or 80s like you were talking about. Um, But I, I believe that it's happening in my AP Gov curriculum. I think that I teach my students and it's built into the curriculum about how slavery and race impacted the governmental systems that exist today. Right. Like the three fifths compromise is that is a decision that was made. In because of slavery that developed the systems, the bicameralism um, of the U.S. government, right? The 
13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, the Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education, all of that is built into the systems that we exist in. There's an entire unit on the civil rights and civil liberties. And so I believe like critical race theory, as I read the definition, part of it is just talking about how did race play into the systems that exist today? How did it yeah. inform or impact or influence the systems that exist today? And I I can say those conversations are happening in yeah. my classroom. Well, but it makes me wonder, I think, because even as I hear you talk about it, and we said earlier, like talking about race and systemic racism or systemic sexism or whatever it is, doesn't mean you're necessarily teaching that theory, right? You are influenced by the things that you've read around that theory and your own understanding as it's growing. And that is what's shaping you know, in good practice, right, as we were, mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier. But it doesn't mean you're up there like, here are the five tenets of critical race theory and now blah, 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 and let's mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and, and as we said, like part of good practice is thinking about systems and asking questions and having kids think mm -hmm. critically. And I think maybe that's where it gets muddy for whether or not people are teaching those things. Um, because, I, you know, I think about my – I don't – personally, I don't think I teach critical race theory because I don't think – for me, it doesn't match up with what is – what I understand that term to be or mean. However, right. do I have kids talk about, you know, wh who's left out of the stories? Do I have kids talk? Mm -hmm. Do we talk about race as a social construct? For sure. Do we, you know, unpack an author's, you know, background and intent and all those kind of pieces? But I think maybe that's where I'm wrestling, and full disclosure for listeners, as Megan are talking about this, right? Like yeah. how we're wrestling with our own practice. Absolutely. Combined with what is going on in society around us, combined with our understanding of this. You know, I, I, right. I have kids listen to Kimberly Crenshaw yeah, TED yeah. Talk, but that's not, Absolutely. to me, that's not the same thing as saying, hey, I'm teaching critical race theory. So do you feel like you have to name something in order to be teaching it? No, but I think if you're going to say, because of the way that the debate is right now, because even in that concept, I do think, well, maybe I do, because I, I do teach AP language, so it's all about, it's all about definitions. It's all about the words. <laughs> and the words. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there is a part of that. So, if I am doing that, then I would want to name that. But if I'm naming that, then I would want to actually do that. Does that make I sense? Would, because yeah. I don't think, like, I teach about intersectionality, but I don't tell kids and we talk about the definition and we look at Kimberly's work, but it's uh, – Kimberly, sorry, Miss Crenshaw, Dr. Crenshaw. Um, but it's not like I'm like, hey, guys, I'm now teaching you intersectionality as an expert, da-da-da-da-da, and now we're doing this all these different lenses. It's just yeah. one framework See, that we reference, and, I, and push, I think there's a difference on that. And I push back on that, right, like a little bit. There are varying levels and degrees in which you can teach something in your classroom. Of but course, I can say that at Lincoln High School, the junior English department does a, a unit on talking about intersectionality. And I know I started I helped yeah, start that unit, yeah, but that's why did. I'm saying I don't think that's what that's what they're doing. I but would argue that that's isn't not what there, doing. But it's a spectrum, right? So like you're not diving deep into it, but you're introducing the ideas and concepts of the theory of intersectionality, which then my stu my senior students bring up when I'm talking about civil rights and civil liberties. Mm -hmm. in my senior level AP government classroom and they reference that unit, right? So there's very, I think that it's a spectrum. I don't think that you either are, you aren't, right? I think that there are varying levels in which you can introduce concepts and ideas. And that's what I mean. It's like, that's why I think people that are so scared about this being like the idea or concepts happening in elementary schools. I don't think this is happening in elementary. I don't think critical race theory is being taught in elementary or middle yeah. school classrooms. But I think that muddiness, what you're talking about, is why people are so, is partly contributing to why people are so upset right now, is because people don't have an understanding of that. And when they hear that teachers are talking about race, yeah. and they hear that teachers are reading, you know, kids are reading stories by people of color, or talking about this, you know, the laws that were in place, mm -hmm. I think 
because they have a simplistic understanding of what critical race theory is, then they're automatically making that mental leap. And I guess that's what I'm pushing back on, because otherwise, when I when I think about, you know, the teachers who are doing what is what I would say is best practice and including multiple voices in their classes and looking at things more holistically, then you could then the conservative argument is true. Then critical race theory is happening and people are upset about it. And I think that's what I personally want to get away from because I don't because I don't think that's the case. And so I think the more that water is muddied, the harder it is to defend. Otherwise, the conservatives are right. Then we are teaching it. And therefore, we need to face that and either accept it or we need to ban it. And I think that's I don't want to get to that point. I guess I don't know what you do with that. And I guess for me, it's I think that the problem is that we're too focused on are we teaching it? What is it defining it rather than looking at what's actually happening? And so I just I don't think that it's black or white. I think that um I think that by trying to define it, it loses the nuance and it cr- it makes it easier to attack, right? Like I think it makes it easier to to tear apart and attack and instead of it being like, well, no, it's just we're talking about race and whether I believe that I'm teaching concepts from critical race theory or not, like it's it's but, good practice and it's good teaching. Yeah. The tough part, I think, is if you don't define it, then everything fits into it. Everything is that thing. And yeah. it becomes that wishy-washy space where everyone's like, well, you are because you taught this. Or mm-hmm. because I know one of the things I've been seeing is, is folks getting confused with culturally responsive teaching, mm-hmm. which is a different CRT. Um, <laughs> right? And there's been lots of work. Um, and some of the same authors who have been involved in critical race theory have done some work. I like, think about um, Gladson Billings, um, that author. And just... Um, what people I think are getting mixed up is our other theories of best practices, Absolutely. right? So like culturally responsive teaching is about, you know, understanding where students from, understanding their cultural paradigm, whether mm-hmm. that's linguistic, ethnic, whatever, like mm-hmm. regional, geographical, and using those things to inform teaching. And I think people are just throwing it all together. And so to me, I guess that's maybe it's the yeah. English teacher in me, right? Is why mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you got to think about it in its own individual pieces. And then, you know, what are the implications around that? Absolutely. Which makes it really hard. And it I does. think partly why we're talking about this right? today and, and rest. With it, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think all of this is is leading into our next episode yeah. where we're going to be able to discuss, do our teachers really teaching yeah. this in the classroom? Yeah. And and should they be teaching this yes. in the classroom? Yeah. Right. And if a teacher hasn't been taught how to teach this effectively, um, if they haven't gone through trainings, should they be tackling this, um, approaching this? Is it more damaging to? Is it more damaging not to? And so I'm really excited to continue this conversation into our next episode. Me too. All right. With that said, uh, let's do our final segment. Do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies. So, of course, go look at all the links that we're going to link to to help you understand this topic and think about um, what does critical race theory maybe mean in your context, right? Because you don't have to be in education to have this understanding of the concept and then also think about, well, what does it mean to you, right? What does Mm -hmm. it mean in housing? What does it mean in employment? Um, What does it mean in these different spaces? But then also I want to actually recommend two things. One, there was a really interesting conversation with Citizen Ed and Nate Bowling, an interview that 
happened about a month ago on what do the CRT bans mean for teachers. And so I'll link to that um, streamed on YouTube. And then also some of you might remember Katie Swalwell, who was a guest a long time ago with Paul Gorski, and they talked about the equity framework. Anyway, she has started a new podcast called Our Dirty Laundry. Um, And so I would like to link to that as well. And they have a conversation um, similar to what Megan and I have been discussing. And so I want to also link to that. I recommend going to check out their work just to add to your own understanding and your own wrestling with these issues. Absolutely. And then just to piggyback off of read the the links, um, there's some really great articles that we have linked today. And then also Citizen Tacoma, they did some really, really fantastic interviews with the mayoral candidates for Tacoma. I really suggest going and listening to those episodes um, and being informed on who's running for mayor, what they have to say and what they what they stand for. All right, y'all go do all that homework and we'll see you soon. Bye. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Easier in person. Everything's Ah, easier. Okay, push the button. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer. Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.